you are now about to experience the Revive Effect. My name is Matt Celestio, entrepreneur and holistic health specialist. And if you're ready to start your health journey but don't know where to begin, you are in the right place. At Revive, we create better ways of living for our generation by changing the conversation around health. Each episode shows you exactly how to build health into your life and you'll unlock tactics to improve your sleep, nutrition, anxiety, self-talk, and mind. Break free from quick fix culture. It's time you learn to love your body and ignite the fire that makes you feel like the real you again. Welcome to The Revive Effect. Welcome back, you beautiful, beautiful people. I'm your host, Matt Celestio. Thank you again for tuning in, whether you are on your morning walk, your evening commute, or you're just skipping work to listen. I appreciate you being here. It means the world to me. And without you, this amazing podcast wouldn't continue. There would be no voice to be heard. So at the end of the day, you people are the reason that I am doing this, that Revive is doing this. So thank you. And I will let you know that we actually did finish in the top 20% most globally shared on Spotify for 2021. And that's because of you. You guys listen, you guys share, you guys advocate for the message we're trying to bring forth. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for tuning in. I promise we have an amazing episode lined up for you today. And it's something that's very controversial in terms of what's floating around the nutrition space, what's floating around the health space. And I actually received the inspiration for this episode after I just wrapped up Ed Winter's new book called This is Vegan Propaganda. Now, who's Ed Winters? Ed Winters, he's a compassionate uh, activist, okay? He's a vegan educator from the UK, and he's widely known for his online viral content. Throughout his new book, he lays out beautifully research-backed insights into the common stigmas, doubts, and adversity that vegans face in terms of their choice just not to consume animal products. So not only does he illustrate the detriments of a diet high in animal foods and the widely known benefits of a plant-based diet, He also illuminates the full narrative of our society's overconsumption of these very animal foods. Now, he dives into the exploitation and the mutilation that goes on behind the closed doors of slaughterhouses. He explores the environmental impacts of this industry and that it has on its climate change, deforestation, pollution. And he even gives you a peek into how our next pandemic will be the result of poor practices used by the animal agriculture industry. Okay, there's even research in his book saying, quote, COVID-19 was merely a dress rehearsal for the next pandemic that's about to come. Scary stuff. He's not joking. He's not joking. Once you read the research, it really is remarkable. But after reading Ed's beautifully articulated words around the power of veganism, I knew I needed to help spread this message of how we need to stop consuming animal foods and shift our diets to a more health-promoting plant-based diet. I really enjoyed piecing this episode together because it was like putting a puzzle together. A puzzle that combines global data, thousands of pages of nutrition books, tons of studies and blogs that I scoured the internet for, and of course, plenty of points from Ed's new book. Now to put everything into a single episode that I have found, it would be hundreds of hours long. So my intention today is to show you the most impactful parts of the puzzle of how our food choices in the grocery store blend together our three topics for this episode today. So number one, we're going to look at the corruption, misinformation, and lies the animal agriculture industry feeds you. Then we're going to look at number two, could plant-based diets save your life or are vegans just crazy extremists? And lastly, and this is the one that I was very blown away by, it is how our grocery store purchases affect and contribute to deforestation, 
loss of biodiversity, ocean degradation, and climate change. And time permitting, we're also going to look at how our invisible belief system around animal foods and consumption, it's never really been adopted consciously. We've subconsciously adopted that and it's never been challenged. So if we have time for that, we're definitely going to get a deep dive into there. Now, research has shown that only drug addicts face the same degree of stigma as vegans, with male vegans who have gone vegan for ethical reasons being viewed the most negatively. Can you believe that? Drug addicts and vegans, same stigma. Now, I used to think the same way. Who are these tofu-eating, tree-hugging hippie vegans telling me I can't enjoy a juicy burger with my beer at the summer barbecue? But this was a way of thinking that I used to live by before I discovered the full narrative that goes behind the word vegan. The true narrative that is, you know, really being kept from us by the government and the meat industry merely because it's more profitable for them, even though it comes at a devastating cost to our family's health and quality of life, climate change, habitat destruction, prevalence of diseases, including cancer, diabetes, heart disease. And most importantly, and most importantly, it comes at the expense of the exploitation, mutilation, and harm towards innocent animals every second of every hour of every day. It's beneficial for these companies to keep you and I in the dark. These are bold statements I'm expressing at you at this very moment. I understand. You might be scratching your head saying, you know, hey, Matt, we need meat to be healthy. The animals are raised humanely. Farmers slaughter them ethically. There's nothing to be concerned about. But none of this could be further from the truth. Okay, as a global society, we slaughter 80 billion animals per year. That's Billy with a B. Do you really think the animal agriculture industry built solely around profits, corruption, and greed and has to keep up with the insatiable growing demand for meat consumption, do you really think they're acting, acting ethically? No, they're a business. Their business model is built solely around efficiency, production, and cost effectiveness for very little regard for our planet and society's well-being. These are well-oiled murdering operations that are constantly evolving to keep up with more efficient ways of slaughtering, consuming tons of natural resources to keep up production, and to continue degrading the very planet that we call home. But wait, uh, why haven't you heard of this before? Why haven't you heard the true and complete impact the animal industry has on your planet, in your life? When vegans speak out about these issues that are almost always caused by the animal agriculture industry, they're always labeled as being a crazy wacko conspiracy theorist, or they have their voice beaten down so far into a pulp that their words suddenly vanish off the face of the earth. The animal, the animal industry has a lot to lose if their impact on humanity were to actually be revealed. Now, some of the things of the industry that they, you know, that they wouldn't want the everyday consumer to know, aka you, one of these things is that raising livestock for human consumption generates 15 to 17% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, which is greater than the total transportation emissions combined. I'm talking about cars, trucks, planes, trains, even boats, all those put together. These entire industries that are involved in e-commerce, online purchase shipping, and global logistics companies doing daily importing and exporting. We're so worried about these oil and gas companies spewing carbon into our planet, yet the animal agriculture industry produces 65% of nitrous oxide emissions, which has a global warming impact 296 times greater than carbon dioxide. 296 times greater. And animal agriculture also uses 70% of all agricultural land, more than two-thirds, which makes it the leading contributor to deforestation, biodiversity loss, and water pollution. 
The animal industry is very good at redirecting attention from their horrible byproducts, overconsumption of resources, and pollutions involved in their day-to-day operations. Not to mention their abuse and mutilation of innocent animals. That's another whole topic in and of itself. Now, we've been brainwashed into thinking these problems of our personal health and the health of our planet, they lie elsewhere. These are the areas like oil and gas industries. You know, these industries certainly do need some attention and solutions. I agree. But the point I want you to take away right now is this. The biggest, fastest, most silver bullet thing that you can do to save your planet's health, the well-being of billions of innocent animals, and the health of yourself and your family lies in what you are putting on your dinner plate every night. Do you? Do I want you to start adopting more of a plant-based lifestyle? Yes, a million times yes. I truly don't think many of us know how deep our food choices run and really understand the magnitude of our seemingly insignificant daily food choices and how much impact they have on our health and the world around us. I have read an enormity of research around this topic of animal food consumption, diving into the areas of corruption and collusion between the government and the animal industry, the link between high animal food consumption and cancer, diabetes, and obesity rates, and the most important one is the devastating effect on this animal agriculture industry and how it is deliberately decimating our oceans and nature and homes every single day. And the solution to all these things, it lies in the adoption of a plant-based diet. Again, there is so many factors that go into this, but like I said, one of the biggest silver, silver bullet things that we can do right now is to adopt a plant-based diet and stop consuming and perpetuating an industry that is contributing to all these problems. So once we start adopting a plant-based diet, we can expect a cleaner earth, a healthier generation. That's something I want for you and your people, for me and my people. And this solution starts with you understanding how veganism is not the mislabeled propaganda it's made out to be. It's a narrative that really needs to be revealed to you so we truly understand the impact of our daily decisions and actions. Now the first stop in this narrative and this story, it lies in uncovering the corruption, misinformation, and lies the animal agriculture industry feeds you. Let's jump in. Cancer and heart disease are all in the genes. Milk is good for you. You need meat to get your protein. If meat and dairy are so bad for you, why have I never heard about it before? These are the remarks that I hear on a daily basis. Now, to answer these common questions, I will answer you. He who owns the gold makes all the rules. When we're talking about the one who owns all the gold, we're talking about the animal agriculture industry. And I'm not talking about some off-handed deals made in a sketchy back alley from time to time. To quote a line from the China study, the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted, something along the lines goes like this. The entire system, government, medicine, industry media, and academia promotes profits over health, technology over food, and confusion over clarity. Now, I want you to keep this quote in mind as we explore this next example together. These companies rake in an incomprehensible amount of money, making them richer, more corrupt, more dangerous, greedy, and powerful every single year. But what are we talking about when we say they're more corrupt and powerful? And I'll give you an example. I like to tie in food and health because these two facets of our lives are inextricably linked together. Now, because of what we eat determines our health so much, let's tie in Big Pharma as well, which is the pharmaceutical company, alongside Big Government and Big Food, which is the animal agriculture industry. Big Pharma and Big Food 
are so rich and powerful, they are able to influence government policy. The guidance and advice our government then relays to us, the consumers and general population. Through lobbying, quote-unquote donations to government officials, or shady backhanded payments, these industries are able to sway the information the government relays to us so it benefits them. Here's one example. Although the link between animal foods consumption and type 2 diabetes is so prevalent, the government continues to use the food pyramid or the five food groups which encourages the consumption of meat and dairy products on a daily basis to promote a healthy lifestyle. Okay, we trust the government, we adopt these eating practices like they said, but now we are at the point where one in five Americans are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And when diagnosed, you should know that you now need medication to deal with these diabetes. Not for one month, not for one year, but for the rest of your life. So through these powerful and heavily funded industries, the meat industry is then able to sell you more animal products, and then the pharmaceutical company is then getting guaranteed lifetime customers for their medicine. It's not difficult to see the corruption and misinformation coming to the surface once you understand the mechanisms that turn the gears behind these systems behind the scenes. Now, besides lobbying and influencing government officials and national policy, another way the animal agriculture industry leaves you in the dark is by funding studies that discredit any research that makes them look poorly. That's why for every study showcasing the nasty effects of a diet high in red meat, there is a study funded by a meat company showcasing the beneficial effects of a diet high in red meat. That's why for every study showcasing the health benefits of a plant-based diet, there's a study funded by the meat company that shows some BS way that a plant-based diet doesn't have all the nutrients you need. These industries are clouding the water with corrupt studies so that you don't have a clear answer as to what you should be eating to live a healthy lifestyle. And that is exactly how they want it. And people always say, read opposing data, listen to opinions that go against your belief system in order to really get that full scope of the problem. Yet, I don't know if I can truly trust the data that is opposing plant-based diets anymore. You know, are eggs truly good for you and pose no risk to your chance of heart disease? Or was a study funded by somebody who owned the egg industry or owned a company in the egg industry? Even with no conflicts of interest listed, which is a requirement in peer-reviewed science, I know there's been instances where the lead scientist of a study is actually on the payroll of a company within the animal agriculture industry as a backdoor strategy around this policy. You're supposed to read opposing opinions. I do. I've read books advocating for plant-based and meat-based diets. I've seen the polarizing points that each side is trying to make. A majority of the time, the plant-based books that I read are 400 pages long. They leave about 100 pages for the studies that they've referenced as well. Now, the meat-based books I read, they just reach over 200 pages, and they barely leave any room in the back of their book for their research and their references. The sheer size of evidence in the plant-based books I've read literally towers over the size of the evidence in the meat-based books I've read if I were to stack them on top of each other. But meanwhile, plant-based authors and researchers, they back their opinions on mountains of evidence. Mountains! Meanwhile, people who advocate for meat-intensive diets, their rationale you know, through research, it pales in comparison to the mountains of research on the plant-based side. But that's okay, because to the consumer, these meat-based advocates... They don't need to be right. They just need to create doubt. It's tough to see all the corruption within these animal agriculture industries from a consumer standpoint, because after all, that's that's exactly how they want it. And we just spoke about that too. So recall that from the previous little bit of this podcast. 
but the meat, egg, and dairy industries are so big and rich, they are essentially regulating themselves. Like we spoke about as well, they heavily influence government policy to the point where the information in our government that it is giving to us, health and nutrition related, it is directly impacted by the meat, egg, meat dairy, and egg industries, even at the expense of our health and planet's well-being. Remember, these influence or remember, these industries influence government through something called lobbying. And basically, lobbying is any attempt by individuals or private interest groups, which, aka, companies within the meat, egg, and dairy industries, it's any attempt to influence the decisions of the government. And this usually happens when public officials are detained against their will in their offices, hotels, or even private homes. Letters may be written or telephone calls may be made to public officials, and actually campaigns can even be organized for that purpose and they actually provide monetary services and favors for candidates that will better suit their business plan. In an article published in the Physicians Committee organization, they stated, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Pork Producers Council, the North American Meat Institute, the National Chicken Council, and the International Dairy Foods Association, and one more, the American Farm Bureau Federation and its state groups, okay? These are all meat companies and organizations. They have collectively spent $200 million in lobbying since 2000. And they lobby on issues that are climate-related issues like cap and trade, the Clean Air Act, and greenhouse gas regulations. The meat and dairy-related, these associations, they've been traditionally used for lobbying for access to grazing lands, to uh, get over manure management regulations and even influence government regulation so that they can block climate policy so they won't have to limit their production. They are essentially, in plain English, they are trying to dance around all these policies that are benefiting our planet, that are benefiting the health of our society so that they can just produce more, regardless of the outcome. Now, you should also pay attention to one book that shook up the nutritional science industry as well as posed a major threat to the meat, egg, and dairy industries as a whole. And this book is called The China Study. The author Colin Campbell, he is an American biochemist who specializes in the effect of nutrition on long-term health. Now, why should you care about my man Colin? Why, would you, why should you care about what he has to say? I get it. You don't know who he is, but I want you to think about it like this. He is the Drake of the nutrition scene. If I was at a party and I saw Colin Campbell and Drake together at the bar, I would go up to them and ask Drake to take a picture of me with Colin. His research is incredible. Now, Colin doesn't have more slaps than the Beatles, but in his book, The China Study, he speaks out about the times that he's sat high up on advisory boards and government-funded panels around creating the policy and really publicizing reports for our nutrition information. Since he sat on these panels and the groups, he was high up, which really allowed him to see the true colors and the collusion between the animal agriculture industry and the government. And the bit of information that we're about to speak about is coming right out of the pages of his book. At one point, Colin was invited to sit on a panel to put together a report that showcased the link between diet, nutrition, and cancer. Now, during this time, a group called the Public Nutrition Information Committee was formed, okay, the PNIC. And the name of this group is rather self-explanatory. They got to relay information of public or of information to the public. Now, it's two leaders. They had strong connection to these animal industries. And one of the leaders was actually a handsomely paid consultant to the egg industry 
and the other leader acknowledges that 10% of his income came from offering services to the food companies including large dairy corporations. Colin also goes on to state that of the 18 members on that committee, he was the only one that did not have ties to the commercial world of food and drug companies and their coalitions. Many enjoyed handsome benefits including first class travel, cushiony consulting fees all paid by animal companies. Now this committee, or this committee, composed of essentially the most pro-animal industry scientists are telling the general population what to eat for good health. This is like creating a panel of scientists who are paid by cigarette companies to tell us which cigarettes are the best one to smoke. Now Colin later goes on to state in his book, in the world of science as a scientist studying the effect of nutrition on health, they are not free to pursue their research wherever it leads. Coming to the quote-unquote wrong conclusions, that is showing the link between animal foods consumption and related diseases, obesity, and mortality, even through first-rate science, it can damage your career. It's not uncommon for the animal industry to influence that scientist's personal career and research to the public in a way that either buries it so we cannot find it, discredits it through industry-funded studies that oppose it, creating more doubt, more confusion, and more inf- misinformation. Or lastly, it, they will label the scientist as a quack or a, a crazy person, and it degrades the weight of the research that was discovered, even if it's top-rate, even if it's first-rate science. Now, here's the point I want you to take away from everything that we spoke about, the corruption and the influence behind these industries on your health. The food industry is built around marketing. This industry is an identical mirror to what tobacco companies did in the past. Like cigarettes, food has an addictive property. Like sugar, hyperpalatable processed foods, aka chips. It's funny how you can't ever have just one, right? Think about fast food restaurants, even cheese. Everybody says, I could never go vegan, I can't give up cheese. And there's a reason. Cheese has morphine-like compounds called casomorphins that attach to the brain's opiate receptors, making food even harder to resist with its high levels of fat and salt already in there on their own. In a report from Thrillist, they stated, In cheese, we get massive concentrations of fat and salt, which our highly evolved brains continue to love. Combine this with the opioid-like casomorphins that is in cheese, and suddenly this food goes from very delicious to extremely irresistible. I think we can agree, just like cigarette addictions, we can adopt food addictions. Now for years, for years, tobacco and alcohol industries would market towards kids to essentially capture new lifetime customers from an early age. But since then, we smartened up. We said, okay, we got to stop letting tobacco and alcohol industries market to kids, especially towards kids because there's a direct link to chronic disease and negative health outcomes of these products. Yet the food industry is doing the same thing. And there are no laws around marketing these animal foods associated with chronic diseases. Bacon is actually named a class 1 carcinogen, like cigarettes. Beef has been classified a group 2 A carcinogen, meaning it probably causes cancer. Yet we allow the infamous Happy Meal to penetrate our children's lives and health. Bacon and eggs are depicted as the classic high-protein healthy breakfast. Cow's milk consumption has even research showing its links to autoimmune diseases. One of the causes of type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis and vitamin D deficiency, plus osteoporosis and prostate cancer. Yet knowing all this links between milk and these diseases, 
We allow school milk systems to run rampant through our educational system and the industry actually teaches kids about the health benefits of milk. People, we grew up in that generation of school milk programs. We are a product of these very influential tactics from these very powerful animal industries. I remember once having a conversation with my friend who swears he never wants to drink milk again because he's, dis- he's seen the disgusting process that goes on within the dairy industry to obtain the milk. If you ever watch it, you will never have milk again. I invite you to check that out. It is repulsive. But anyways, besides the point, he knows all this. And he me- I remember him telling me, I know this stuff, Matt, but there's just this, this part of me that can't break from it. I think I need milk. It's so deeply ingrained into such developing, trusting, and innocent minds. And we're creating lifetime consumers of products that are putting our generation in the midst of a health epidemic. To quote my man Colin Campbell one more time to wrap up this section, the author of that China study, only someone familiar with the inside of the system can distinguish between sincere positions based in science and insincere self-serving positions. I was inside for many years, working at the very top levels, and I saw enough to be able to say that science is not always the honest search for the truth and that so many people believe it to be. It far too often involved money, power, ego, and protection of personal interests above the common good. What if I told you there was a pill that could prevent 95% of cancers, prevents nearly all heart attacks and strokes, reverses even severe heart disease, improves digestion, prevents and even reverses type 2 diabetes so quickly that after just three days on the drug, it's dangerous for the person to continue with their diabetes medication. And on top of all this, as that beautiful cherry on top, this pill helps you sustainably lose weight and step into your ideal body. The problem is that the industry and big pharma, it won't pick this pill up because it's not very marketable. It's not very sexy to advertise. There isn't tons of money to be made from this pill. Now, this pill I'm talking about is what we folks call a whole foods plant-based diet. The enormity of research showing the life-changing benefits of eating more plant foods and reducing your animal foods consumption, they are getting increasingly harder to ignore. But based on the tons of marketing and brainwashing done by the animal agriculture industry, the majority of us can't even comprehend a lifestyle without our chicken, fish, or pork chops. Plant-based eating is so much more than just cutting out meat and dairy that you need to eat a wide, diverse range of healthy foods to get the full effect. People tell me they went vegan all the time and, you know, they said, I got so tired, got sick, it's just not for them. Well, yeah, because all you ate was pasta and iceberg lettuce salad. No kidding. But without getting that diverse range of high-quality carbs, antioxidants, fiber, vitamins, plant proteins, eating pasta and salad every day is going to be so boring and lacks all the essential nutrients you need to keep thriving. And when people, this is one thing that I kind of really get upset about, is when they say, yeah, the plant-based diet is just so boring, it doesn't taste good. I've seen weight loss diets that have animal foods in them, and there's no way that somebody can reasonably tell me that it is much better than a nice power bowl made with some tofu, edamame, it's got that quinoa, a nice little vinaigrette, lots of vegetables. Meanwhile, when I look at some weight loss, weight loss, what do you call it, meal plans, they say things like, yeah, for dinner, we're going to have meatballs and uh, zucchini noodles. Oh my God, are you kidding me? That sounds like so boring. That sounds actually depressing. 
And not only that, sometimes they'll throw a snack in there. Yeah, you can have some cottage cheese and pineapple. Mmm, so good. That's not good. When you're having plant foods, there's so many different flavors, so many different colors that bring just vibrancy and flavor to the dish. All the spices. Plant-based eating is actually more exciting than eating regular animal foods every day. Low-carb, high-protein. Again, that's a topic for another day. But when we usually talk about plant-based diets, we're having that wrong conversation. Rather than talking about the positive health effects, disease-reducing, longevity-promoting effects, the narrative is always around where do you get your protein? You're going to shrivel up and disappear with no muscle. We've been brainwashed into worshipping protein as if it's the key to everlasting youth and lifelong health. But when we do this, the problem with this tunnel vision view we have is that we neglect the fact that we eat food, not just protein. When we eat chicken, we don't just eat protein. We eat protein plus saturated fat, cholesterol, sodium, and any other environmental toxins that have ended up in that animal's flesh. When we eat lentils, that's a plant that's high in protein, we don't just eat protein. We eat protein plus fiber, complex carbohydrates, polyphenols, potassium, iron, and a range of other nutrients. Now, do you see what I'm getting at here? Rather than looking at food for its individual nutrients, we need to look at food in the same way that we eat it, whole. We eat whole foods. Therefore, we need to have a conversation around how the whole foods you're eating and the whole lifestyle that you're having in the kitchen as a whole is affecting your life. So my response to people who ask me time and time again, where do you get your protein? I would ask them, where do you get your fiber? Where do you get your antioxidants? Where do you get your polyphenols that have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties that could have preventative and therapeutic effects for cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disorders, cancer, and obesity? FYI, if you're wondering what the heck polyphenols are, these are naturally occurring compounds in plants, aka fruits and veggies. And they're very beneficial for your health. So rather than keeping the conversation and the spotlight on protein, we're now going to shift to the conversation of food choices as a whole. Without the dangers of focusing on just protein and neglecting the other essential health promoting components of food that we need. Now a big danger of too much protein, especially animal protein, is that it makes your body very acidic. Now here's the thing, your body doesn't like too much acidity within it. Much like drinking a glass of straight lemon juice is way too sour and it stings too much going down, too much animal protein does the same thing to your body. So exactly how we water down that lemon juice with some light ice, a little bit of sugar, a dash of water, we make lemonade with it. It's much more drinkable. Your body lowers its acidity level by using calcium to help balance it out. Exactly, It's like your body making lemonade internally. So it uses that calcium to balance it out, like we said. And guess where you have a big source of calcium in your body that your body can pull from at any moment? That's right, your body extracts calcium from your bones to make your body less acidic and more balanced. And this explains why Americans who consume more cow's milk per person than any population in the world, they have women over 50 showing one of the highest rates of hip fractures in the world. Their bodies are too acidic. Consuming more animal protein puts you at a greater risk for osteoporosis, which is a bone disease that develops when the bone mineral density and bone mass decreases, or when the structure of the strength of bones changes. Now, isn't it pretty weird though, we're told to drink milk for strong bones because it's high in calcium, but milk as a whole food 
is also high in animal protein, which makes your body too acidic. And this is an amazing example of how not looking at food as a whole, in this case milk, rather than looking at it for its individual nutrients because it's got a lot of calcium. So now we know that our food choices and our overall daily diet as a whole can affect us. Let's look at how these choices affect cancer, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. Now I picked these diseases because they're currently affecting 1 in 5 Canadian adults based on information from the Canadian government. Now research shows that only 2 to 3%, there is a 2 to 3% link between family history and cancer rates, right? What about that other 97%? Isn't cancer all in the genes? Now that's exactly what I thought before I discovered what epigenetics were. Epigenetics is this field of study that looks at how your genes actually modify and change their expression, different than your initial genetic code based on environmental factors in your life. So to explain that to you in English, just like you're in a video game, if you were to press A on the button to go left, or if you were to press B on the button to go right, you can do the exact same with your genetics. External factors like your environment, habits, and most importantly food can press the buttons in your body turning genes on or off. But what foods specifically damage your health, your healthy cells DNA and turn on cancer growth? Good question. A study done by T. Colin Campbell took mice and gave them a dosage of a carcinogen, which is a cancer-promoting substance from our environment. He then fed mice a mix of high-protein diet and low-animal protein diet for 12 weeks. Now, here's the cool part of the study. The mice would switch back and forth between the high-protein and low-protein diet for weeks at a time to see if cancer growth would be affected. The results? Oh, cancer growth strongly increased when the mice were eating a high animal protein diet it then strongly decreased when eating a low animal protein diet and then strongly increased again when they switched back to the high protein diet they were turning on and off cancer growth based on how much protein somebody or a mouse was eating now colin campbell ran the study again this time using plant protein not animal protein as it was in the first study he found no link between the amount of plant protein eaten and cancer growth now, other studies reference in Colin Campbell's work. It showed how colorectal cancer was correlated with high consumption of animal foods and low fiber intake. Now, what's fiber? Fiber is that type of carb that feeds the good bacteria in your gut. And there was also a study showing an inverse relationship between fiber intake and rates of colorectal cancer, which means in plain English, the less fiber people ate, the higher rates of cancer. The more fiber people ate, the less rates of cancer. This last study alone about fiber points us in the direction of what humans should be eating, on a daily basis at least. Fiber is only found in plant foods. Animal foods contain no fiber. And time and time again, research turns up showing consistent dietary predictors for cancer growth as frequent meat and dairy consumption. Not to mention the powerful effect that food has on cancer development will also threaten the almighty research and profits the pharmaceutical industry that raked in 26 billion dollars in canada in 2021 thanks to chemo radiation surgical and other cancer related treatments this is another reason big pharma would want to keep the validity and protective evidence of plant-based diets in the dark and discredit any science that shows animal food consumption is contributing to skyrocketing cancer rates and how the solution lies within it again the systems we live under take advice and that we take advice from they're corrupt now, we just spoke about ensuring we're looking at food choices as a whole. 
not just protein and fiber. Which is why I want to point this out to show how lifestyle factors, especially food choices, can trump genes. There was this really cool study out of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. When they measured the diets and rates of diabetes in Japanese men who immigrated to America. Okay, They came from Japan and moved to America. Originally from Japan, keep this in mind. They found that the Japanese immigrant men had more than four times the prevalence of diabetes compared to the similar aged Japanese men who stayed in Japan. Same gender, same age, same genetics. What is going on here? What is going on? Remember, we spoke about how just like in a video game, pressing A on the button to go left or pressing B on the button to go right, you can do the exact same thing with your genetics. The Japanese men, when they had moved to America, and developed diabetes, they adopted that typical American diet, high in animal foods, which meant their bodies were now dealing with more animal protein, more saturated animal fat, and cholesterol, changing their likelihood of diabetes. Now listen, I know we're always talking about stuff in the lab, we're always talking about stuff in the literature, but I want to make it a little personal right now, okay? Three out of four of my grandparents have been diagnosed with cancer as early as their 70s. When they speak to their brothers and sisters who have stayed back home in Italy, they say they're in their 90s now, but their only problem is that they're just old. Like the Japanese men in this study, my grandparents share the exact same DNA and blood as their brothers and sisters living in different parts of the world, and they are dealing with drastically different diseases that aren't even a problem back home. Okay, This is affecting not only the stats, it's affecting people in our homes. Your family, my family. This is why this topic is so important and it holds dear to me. It holds true to me. So we've talked about cancer. Let's move the conversation to diabetes. So to understand how you develop diabetes, it starts with understanding how your body stores fat and uses energy from the food you eat. When you eat food, your body stores it as glycogen in your muscles, and then it then breaks it down into glucose to be stored or to be used as energy. Think about it like that 2 p.m. slump you get at work you get that midday muffin, you get that second burst of energy. That's because your body just got a fresh supply of carbs to convert it into glucose to give you energy. It's very simple stuff. Now, when you eat foods, you raise your blood sugar. Your body really can't handle that high blood sugar. So what it does is it secretes your hormone insulin to go gather up all that blood sugar and shuttle it right into your muscles. Much like an usher at a theater tells people where their seats are, okay? Exact same thing. But over time, insulin stops doing its job properly. It's trying to put the blood sugar into your muscles, but your muscle cells are tuned out. They're not listening. So that means your blood sugar is now staying elevated. And when this happens, this is when we become into a state of insulin resistance because insulin is not working. Now, your blood sugar friends, they're not able to get to their seats in the theater. Now the blood becomes overcrowded with blood sugar because no one can get to their seats. And essentially, this is what type 2 diabetes is. The economic cost of the diabetes in the U.S. alone in 2000 was $130 billion. Taken a decade later, it skyrockets to $245 billion in 2013. And now, at this present day, it's at $327 billion. It is continuing to grow and grow fast. If you were to rank the economic cost of the diabetes in the U.S.A. alone on the country on every country's GDP, if you were to take a massive list of 195 countries and see how much money every country made, USA 
in terms of their spend on diabetes would be number 36 based on that data. Now, funny enough, U.S. is also at the top of other countries in terms of how much meat they eat. Here in Canada, we're not off scot-free. We're very close to them in terms of how much we eat. Wait, but Matt, I thought sugar and carbs cause diabetes, not meat. This is another big misconception. Reverence in the China study, a great, great landmark study. They had an analysis that looked at different populations and their rates of diabetes. They took it global. They took it around the world, okay? It turned out the countries who ate the most carbs had the lowest rates of diabetes and the countries that ate the most fat had the highest rates of diabetes. In other words, the more fat a population ate, more diabetes they had. The more carbs a country ate and the lower the fat intake, the less diabetes they had. So as a side note, I just want to chime in. The country with the lowest rate of diabetes, they consumed a diet primarily of carbs with almost 90% of their daily food intake coming from carbs. Now to quote one of my favorite health documentaries, What the Health? This is coming right out of the movie or the documentary. The cause of diabetes is a diet that builds up the amount of fat in the blood, a typical meat-based, animal-based diet. If you look at the muscle cells within the human body, and what you find is that they're building up tiny particles of fat, and that's what's causing that insulin resistance. This means that the sugar that is naturally found in the foods you're eating can't get into the cells where they belong. Then the sugar builds up in the blood, have high blood sugar, and that's diabetes. And time and time again, research shows the same thing. A large study in America followed 122,000 nurses from 1976. And another one from 1989, they followed 116,000 women. They concluded that there was a significant association between meat, processed meat, and the development of type 2 diabetes. And it's known that shifting to a plant-based diet is so dangerous for people with diabetes to continue taking their meds because they improve in a matter of days and they don't need their insulin medication anymore. Even if you're not overweight, I want you to pay attention to the next thing I'm about to say. Meat consumption is still correlated with diabetes, even with those who don't gain weight from it. Shifting to a whole foods, plant-based diet has been shown to minimize your likelihood to get type 2 diabetes and even reverse full-blown type 2 diabetes. So now we've talked about cancer, we've talked about diabetes, all related to animal foods and how plant-based diets can really hold the key to that health and fixing that problem. Right now, I want to look at the world's number one global killer right now, heart disease. Heart disease is best defined as greasy layers of protein and fat that accumulate in your arteries. We call this plaque. Much like not brushing your teeth for a week and plaque starts accumulating in your gums and between your teeth, the same thing can happen in your arteries. Now, plaque, plaque is something you don't want in your arteries because your arteries are the main highways in your body that transport blood all over especially to and from one very important area, your heart. Have you ever been stuck on the highway when they've closed down one lane? You've experienced bumper-to-bumper traffic. It's almost impossible to drive through, and the roads are so overcrowded. This is what heart disease looks like inside your arteries that are filled with plaque. There's decreased blood flow and all over the body and to the heart. Chest pain, angina, or full-blown heart attacks can occur because of this very problem. In the first year of the pandemic, we were all familiar with this pandemic. We loved it. It was so great, wasn't it? In the first year alone, it took 2 million lives. The government took action immediately. Lockdowns, restrictions, mandatory vaccines. So let me ask you this. 
Heart disease has been the number one killer for almost 100 years, and it continues to grow year after year. Why hasn't the government been focused on that? Seems like there's a little bit of misalignment here. Here's the answer. There's no money in healthy people. The link between animal food consumption and heart disease is very strong. Time and time again, research shows populations eating more animal foods suffer higher rates of heart disease. Meanwhile, people like Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. Ornish, they have repeatedly shown that they can reverse heart disease through eating a whole foods plant-based diet. We don't bat an eye when someone is told they have to take cholesterol-lowering pills for the rest of their lifetime to minimize their heart disease. Yet, saying you're going to cut down on your animal foods, it causes people to freak out. Whoa, 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 okay, let's not get too drastic here. But the total cost for treating heart disease is projected to rise to $818 billion by 2030. That's a lot of money. Why would Big Pharma tell you to eat more broccoli when they could sell you a lifetime of pills to fund them and make them richer all at the expense of your health? A study out of the Journal of Chronic Diseases showed that cultures that have the lower rates of heart disease eat less saturated fat and animal protein while consuming more whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, aka a plant-based diet. Meanwhile, the opposite is shown when you look at populations that have more animal protein. When they eat more animal protein, the more heart disease their people have. Plant foods have shown to have protective, even reversible effects of cancer, diabetes, cholesterol concerns, and heart disease, even obesity, as everything we've talked about today. Now, circling back to the title of this episode, not only do vegans get a bad rap for going against the norm of of not eating animal foods, they're also labeled as crazy environmental extremists and tree huggers. Now, like you, I used to think the exact same thing. But after reading the book that inspired this episode called This is Vegan Propaganda, author Ed Winters laid out how the consumption of animal products has a detrimental impact on the place that we call home, Earth. So not only have we looked at the corruption, lies, and greed of the animal agriculture industry and the detrimental health impacts of eating a diet high in animal foods, the environmental toll this industry has on our planet shocked me to the point where I couldn't even fathom how bad our situation is at the moment. I want you to imagine it like this for a second. Let's say 10 years ago we were all in a house. We had everybody living in there. We had China living in a house. We had India living in a house. Korea was here. America, Canada, we're all living in the same house. We get a knock on the door one day. We all stop what we're doing. We go to the front door. The guy that we open up the door to, he says, guys, look, your furnace is really rumbling. It's really shaking. It looks like there's going to be some problems. We need to fix this furnace. We go, ooh, how much is that going to cost? Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. We don't need to worry about that. We shut the door. And we go on our day-to-day, no problem. As time goes on, all of a sudden, the furnace blows. Now the house is on fire because the furnace has exploded. Before, before the furnace blowed, we were in a state of rumbling and shaking. There was a serious problem coming our way. That is what we were at decades ago. When the house was on fire, that's where we were decades ago. We are so past the warning signs and we are so far past the heat of the moment that we are almost at the point to what we are doing to the planet is going to be irreversible. It's going to be irreversible. The house is on fire and we need solutions yesterday, 
decades ago. The problem is here. So the first shocking situation that we're going to dive into today is how many natural resources this industry leaches from our environment to produce the products we so cheaply purchase at the grocery store or in fast food restaurants. We're talking about the scale of land and water use to farm animals. Mind you, all this information here is right out of peer-reviewed science, economic forums, and research-backed nutrition and sustainability books. So I assure you, only the highest quality truth from this point on. Livestock production is the single and largest use of land that negatively impacts humans and the health of our environment. If you were to take all the agricultural land globally, including plants and pastures, animal production dominates 75% of the land we need to feed the world. The U.S. food production system alone uses 50% of the entire U.S. land area, 80% of its fresh water, and 17% of the fossil energy used in the country. Remember, these emissions are greater than all the transport emissions combined. Not to mention that more than half of the plant crop production in the U.S. is solely for the purpose of feeding animals to slaughter them. At the present, the total amount of farm animals consume in the U.S., they consume seven times as much grain compared to the entire American population. The amount of grain fed to the U.S. livestock, if we were to eradicate the need for that of the animals, we would feed an additional 840 million people who follow a plant-based diet. Now, you're probably at this point thinking, wowza, that seems like an incredibly inefficient system we're using to simply make steak and chicken breast. There's no way it gets worse. Oh, but it does. Listen, for every one kilogram of high-quality animal protein we produce, livestock are fed about six kilograms of plant protein. We worship protein, yet we're funding a system that provides us with less protein than we are already producing from plants. What you may not know is that all protein originates in plants. Where do you think these animals are getting their protein? Livestock are the middlemen for the protein because they eat the plants and grains. Their body breaks it down in them for necessary growth and development. So not only are we growing tons of unnecessary plant foods to be merely lost in production of animal meat, growing all this unnecessary animal feed results in an insurmountable of water needed to grow these crops to give to the animals. Let me put this into perspective for you. This information is shocking, okay? For just one egg at breakfast, one egg, it takes 163 liters of water to produce. That's enough drinking water to provide an average person three months of three entire months of drinking water hitting the recommended eight ounces daily. You think that's bad? Listen to beef production. It takes 15,400 liters to make one kilogram of beef. To put that into perspective for you, every time you eat one burger, it takes 2,600 liters of water. That's enough to provide an average person almost four years of drinking water, hitting the recommended eight ounces daily. Now, yes, plant-based diets have a water footprint too, okay? These plant-based eaters shouldn't get away scot-free. What about all their soy milks, tempeh, tofu, and all that edamame for their power bowls? Corn and soy are the most produced crops on the planet. I hear you loud and clear. You make a great point. But what you may not know is that more than three quarters, 77% of global soy is fed to livestock for meat and dairy production. Only 7% of soy is directly used 
for human consumption such as tofu, soy milk, edamame beans, and tempeh. Now, corn is the second most produced crop in the world, yet on a global basis, 74% of maize, which is corn, goes to animal feed. Animal farming accounts for nearly one-third of the world's fresh water consumption, and it's not surprising to see why after our conversation right here. Even with land use, the stats are horrifying, okay? In the 1980s and 90s, tropical rainforests were the source of 80% of new agricultural land. That's right. Did you really think the cause of deforestation was the oil industry? Yeah, they certainly play a part, but nowhere near as much as the animal agriculture industry has and continues to do. The demand for meat and dairy is only expected to increase 68% for meat, 57% for dairy by 2030. That's years away. That's not in the future. That's within our horizons. One recent study estimates that feeding 9 billion people a Western diet, which is a lot of animal protein with Western technologies, it would require almost twice the amount of cropland currently under cultivation. We're going to need to double our production. We're going to need to double our land and freshwater use. It's not difficult to put two and two together and imagine what's going to happen to our forests and land if we keep up with this demand for animal foods. Imagine a world without ecosystems, without forests, without nature. All of this so we can enjoy our burgers and chicken wings on the weekends. The amazing news is, though, that a meat-free diet can reduce your water use by half and can be fed to you using significantly less land. If we want to conserve our land and conserve our water, going plant-based is a big step in the right direction. Now, another terrible impact our meat consumption habits and animal, cons- animal agriculture has on our planet, besides the overuse of land and water, is the amount of emissions they produce. Emissions that are directly linked to one of our most pressing, pressing issues of our generation, climate change. We spoke about this at the beginning of the pod, okay? Raising livestock for human consumption generates nearly 15 to 17% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is greater than all the transport emissions combined, okay? All the emissions combined. It uses nearly 70% of agricultural land, which leads to it being the most major contributor to deforestation, biodiversity loss, and water pollution. Globally, Cows produce 150 billion gallons of methane per day, per day. Methane is a greenhouse gas that has a global warming impact 86 times more than carbon dioxide. Animal agriculture, get this, aside from that, also produces 65% of the world's nitrous oxide emissions, which is another greenhouse gas which has a global warming impact 296 times greater than carbon dioxide. Stanford University, it labels nitrous oxide as the biggest human-related threat to our ozone layer. This animal agriculture industry is a bigger threat to humanity compared to the the entire fossil fuel production and distribution industry. Okay, Matt, you're showcasing some really good points. I may chill it with the meat. I got you. But I heard fish is better though, right? Oh, my friend, not exactly. Up until a few weeks ago, I never realized how important the health of our oceans was in terms of keeping the planet and the population alive. But after reading the enormity of research this last little bit, I've really seen the conclusion. And here it is. If the oceans die, then we die. Now, what what do I mean when I say the oceans are dying? Let's dive in. 
You're damn right that pun was intended. Now, oceans give us oxygen, all right? Most of us think trees and the forests are the sole providers of oxygen to keep us breathing, and you're right to an extent, though. Rainforests give us about 20% of the Earth's global oxygen production, but the ocean is responsible for producing that other 80%. The same way that plants take in carbon dioxide from our environments and turn it into oxygen, what we learned in school, that's photosynthesis, ladies and gentlemen, in the ocean, these microscopic marine algae called phytoplankton do the exact same thing. Think about them like mini ocean plants that can photosynthesize. This is essentially what produces our oxygen and helps remove carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. And that is also a big helper for regulating our planet's temperature. The ocean to simply put it, it's extremely important for the survival of us humans. Now, how are these animal industry industries and commercial fisheries screwing up this beautiful symbiotic relationship between the ocean and planet that has evolved in harmony over millions and millions of years? That's my question exactly. In the same way in which we ruin our land to expand animal agriculture production, called deforestation, we are essentially deforesting our oceans through fisheries using a method called thralling. In Ed Winter's book, This is Vegan Propaganda, he defines thralling as the following. Bottom thralling is a popular method in commercial fishing because it can catch large quantities of fish in one go. This is done by dragging large weighted nets across the seafloor that captures everything in its way. This creates what we call ocean dead zones because fisheries are essentially decimating the ecosystems by removing all life under the water. It's like they tossed a massive bulldozer 100 times the size of the ones that we know and we drag it around the entire ocean. What we need to understand is that before we humans came around, everything on the planet works in harmony to maintain a healthy, balanced ecosystem. Everything plays a vital part. Much like a house of cards, you need all the pieces. Removing specific ones results in the crashing, of a, the crashing down of the house. Now fisheries, they're doing the exact same thing to feed our growing demand for fish tacos and tequila. When these fisheries cast their nets overboard, through the process of thralling, they accidentally pick up other species they weren't intending to catch in the first place. And this is called bycatch. Bycatch is all other marine life that was caught while trying to catch another specific species. And one prime example of this is the amount of sharks that are killed per year due to overfishing and bycatch. Now put this into perspective for you, sharks on average kill about 10 people per year. But through overfishing and bycatch, we kill up from 10,000 to 30,000 sharks per hour. That's 50 million per year. And half of these are killed as bycatch and merely discarded as waste back into the ocean. When I hear stuff like this, it truly angers me. Like I'm getting worked up right now talking about this. It's the extent to these fisheries and these industries that they'll go through to make a stupid dollar. It's sickening and I refuse to fund these industries by buying products on their grocery store shelves. Now, imagine if we just put this in a different context, for example. About 3,000 people died in 9-11. This huge amount of unnecessary murder of bycatch is like 10 9-11s happening every hour. Imagine what we would do if that was happening where we could see it. We would have an outrage, a riot. That's full-blown murder happening every hour, every year, all year long. But because the government and fisheries hide this stuff from us, most of us don't even know. 
And this is just the sharks, by the way, okay? We haven't even taken into account all other species needlessly slaughtered to make and generate more profits. Dolphins, whales, turtles, the list goes on. Fisheries actually kill dolphins to not even sell them. They kill them just because they're eating too much fish and by killing them, it allows the fisheries to now have the ability to catch more fish and therefore make more money. These animal agriculture and aquaculture industries are decimating our planet and causing a genocide of animals that is benefiting no one. If you think this stuff is happening all in different countries and your country is all okay, I want you to think again. This problem is happening around the globe every second, every day, and it's all funded by us. We are the ones increasing the demand for these products. We are the ones keeping the gears turning within these companies because we keep buying. On this concept of fueling the demand for these corrupted industries, we're overfishing to the point that we're killing the ocean and the ocean is killing us. And I'm not exaggerating, okay? Oceans are a major regulator of our temperature and climate. Oceans absorb 40% of all carbon dioxide emissions. The same way that plants remove the carbon dioxide from our atmosphere and turn it into oxygen, phytoplankton in the ocean, they do the exact same thing. Remember those mini ocean plants that can photosynthesize? We just spoke about that. But they do this on a much larger scale. Now what you need to know about these phytoplankton is that healthy whale populations are the main drivers that keep them alive so they can remove the carbon dioxide from our atmosphere and produce oxygen for us. They are a major climate and temperature regulator for us. Remember, everything in nature works in harmony. The relationship with whales and phytoplankton is incredible because it helps us sustain our environment and atmosphere. Now, before the industrial whaling industry severely reduced the whale populations, scientists estimate that whales would have removed the amount of carbon from our atmosphere equivalent to removing 410,000 cars off the road every year meaning we're killing whale populations into the brink of extinction. Okay, We're doing nothing beneficial for our population at that point. We kill the whales, we kill the phytoplankton, we kill the amount of oxygen we get from the ocean, and we essentially turn our planet into a pressure cooker waiting to blow. Without this marine ecosystem, we're done. Research has shown that 90%, and I'll say it again, 90% of our world's fish stocks are now fully fished, or overfished. We're on pace to have empty oceans by 2048. That's in our lifetime. We're going to leave our next generation, our kids, with a lifetime of problems including drought and a dead planet. All because we merely want to eat a tuna sandwich or have half-off fish tacos and tequila on Friday night. So many animal lives and fish lives are obliterated for meals that we eat in 15 minutes and forget about. And just to add to a cherry on top about how corrupt these agriculture and aquaculture industries are, listen to this reference in Ed Winter's book. Quoting, To make matters worse, 20% of all fish that are caught are fed to farm animals, including farmed fish, meaning our oceans are being destroyed to feed animals in an industry that is further contributing to environmental degradation in a whole host of other ways, such as greenhouse gas emissions, habitat destruction, deforestation, and pollution, and not to mention the serious implications that diet high in animal foods has on our generation's health and diseases. I used to think that the only people who win in this case were the people who own these agriculture industries or who are at the top of these farms and fisheries. 
But what I just realized is that these people also live on the planet where all of these negative consequences are occurring. So don't you see? Everyone loses under this current system. Everyone. I once had a conversation with an old friend who said she loves animals. I challenged her seemingly insignificant remark by saying, do you really love animals? I saw you eat eggs for breakfast and then chicken breast for lunch. She got defensive and triggered. She said, no, 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 that's different. But I'll challenge you to think about why that's totally not different. Animals are animals, regardless of their species. You can't say you love animals if you take your dog to the park and then drive to the grocery store and buy chicken breast Knowing these industries are built on animal exploitation, overcrowding, animal abuse, mutilation, and slaughter. I've even been at points where I've been in conversations hearing about one friend who has to put their dog down. Meanwhile, the person who's saying, oh my goodness, that's so sad. Like, I can't believe that's happening. That should never happen. They're heating up bacon on the, on the stove. Now, these people and the girl in my story, they're not bad people. Every, they're very kind and loving people, actually. And we're all good people. I know that. I know some of the warmest people in my life who eat meat every day. I just truly think that we're very disconnected from where our food comes from and what it comes at the expense of. That was my intention behind this episode today because it was really designed to shine some light on the corruption, health issues, and environmental degradation the animal industries continue to expand on a daily basis. I am a little bit skeptical about changing an entire global system that interconnects for profits, corruption, and greed between our agricultural systems, government, and pharmaceutical industry. But it's made me realize a diamond in the dust. To go toe-to-toe with these companies so heavily funded and deeply entrenched in systems that are founded on exploitation and murder of animals, environmental pollution, and the mass deterioration of our humanity's health, it's a scary feat. But at the end of the day, we consumers hold the power, not the companies not the industries. They only produce animal products because we're still consuming it. It's basic economics. It's supply and demand. When I used to work at a food company, when the matcha tea trend came out, it was very quick before we saw new products start flying into our office to be marketed. Matcha cookies, matcha milkshakes, matcha chocolates, you name it. Gabe, why did this happen? Because the food companies listened to and matched the demands of consumers. It's the same with meat and fish. They won't produce meat and fish if there's no demand for it. They will produce products in alignment with where the current demand is in the market. That's why we consumers, we truly hold the power over what these companies produce. Shifting towards a plant-based diet helps you escape the matrix that's been psychologically embedded into your upbringing. It helps you escape your invisible belief system that you've never really challenged or you've even subconsciously adopted. Swapping fatty animal foods with healthy, real plant foods can work wonders for your health. You've heard through this episode how powerful the effects can be. It can prevent cancer growth. It can reverse diabetes. And it can even make sure you're not another statistic falling prey to the global killer heart disease. This way of life, much like a pill prescribed by your doctor, could be the answer to any health problem you're currently experiencing or will be surprised about facing in the future. The only thing is, this way of life comes with side effects, much like a synthetic pill manufactured by pharmaceutical companies. 
The side effects include saving millions of animals' lives and removing them from a lifetime of fear, neglect, pain, and suffering. It can radically improve your health in so many more areas than the three we covered today, including arthritis, inflammation, poor digestion, and just so many more. Another side effect involves keeping our planet and oceans healthy so that we can sustain, sustainably step into that next generation while leaving a place for our kids to be able to thrive in. It's not hard to do. It's a matter of putting your health, your planet, and your life first. Make yourself a priority. Make your health a priority. And make the planet you want to leave your kids a priority. Switching to a plant-based diet could be the one thing you do this year that saves your life and all of our lives. Thank you for tuning in this week. I'll see you next time on the Revive Effect podcast.